Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. New Orleans French bread is the stuff of legends. You can't have a poor boy without it. Yet, as important as poor boy bread is, today there are just two old school bakeries producing that all-important loaf. The John Gendusa Bakery and the Leidenheimer Baking Company. On this week's show, we'll hear the story of the first poor boy loaf ever baked from the originator's grandson, John Gendusa. And then we'll catch up with the fourth generation, John's son Jason, who's at the helm of the family bakery today. Next, Sandy Wan of Leidenheimer's shares the story of their bakery, which dates back to 1896. And we'll meet William Wan, the fifth generation who's committed to carry on the family business. But there's one more baker who's caused quite a stir in New Orleans. Grayson Gill of Belgard Bakery literally changed the profile of New Orleans bread over the past decade. We'll hear the story of how the ambitious California native took New Orleans by storm. We're breaking bread on this week's Louisiana Eats. My name is Grayson Gill, and I'm the owner of Belgard Bakery in New Orleans. Grayson Gill describes bread as basically flour, water, and a little salt. Yet what he created at Belgard Bakery could not be further from that. In-house, stone-milled, fresh heirloom whole grains make his breads something a lot more. For years, Belgard has provided its stone-milled products to over 120 restaurants and markets in Louisiana. He was also named a James Beard Award finalist for Outstanding Baker in May 2020. Last June, we stopped by the Apple Street Bakery to talk with Grayson about how he came to live in and love New Orleans and baking. The easy answer is that my one of my best friends from high school, his mom is from Chalmette, so he moved back home to New Orleans um, in 2009, and I moved here with him because he and I had been living together in Europe, and I had I was at that point in my life with not any sort of commitments or anything going on, and decided to move here with him. Um, but the longer story is that I I grew up in Southern California with some Black Creoles that were part of the last part of the Great Migration the Guichard family and they left Washington Parish um, after Paul like the patriarch served in Vietnam in the Navy so he came to Southern California in 71 and then he married a Chicana woman and those were my best friends growing up in Redondo Beach California where where I grew up so Paul Paul senior and then Paul jr I was best friends with his two sons Paul jr and Michael and Paul Sr. after work was obviously always cooking and we lived our lives outside, um, outside on our block, whether that was roller skating or skateboarding or boxing or 
fireworks obviously cooking eating and just doing all these things and they they definitely without articulating it kind of matriculated me into the culture of louisiana so when i came here it's not that i got attracted to like bourbon street or the bars or the parties or the festivals it was something a lot deeper that spoke to me and most importantly when i got here things were familiar it felt like home because that was since the age of 10 that's who and what i grew up with and that's why i never left or plan on leaving is because there's just a kind of um there's a spiritual magnetism to this place within me and it was just it was massaged into me for a long time and i just feel out of place anywhere else in in america when did the baking thing start uh it started right away when i moved here in april i I took a greyhound bus here from uh, new york city and it was like two or three days and i got picked up at the passenger terminal on Loyola and um, I started baking I think the next day so that was April 16th I think of 2009 and in the apartment that I was renting with some friends at Royal Street just out of curiosity I suppose and always having loved cooking and been around cooking from my grandparents or from the neighbors Um, but baking as I continued to do it more in the apartment just kind of grabbed me in a deeper way than I think food and cooking had and that kind of snowballed into selling some bread to neighbors and then that snowballed into like well i know this guy that owns a commercial kitchen and that's when i got into karma kitchen with ann churchill and dan Essis, and that was i think september of 2009 so it went from just using like a little oven in the kitchen at the apartment making a mess on the wisa street in royal street to renting karma kitchen and having this huge oven to bake out of and a huge mixer and then doing the farmer's markets and a few restaurants. So it all kind of went downhill from there. Back in the beginning, when you're making this bread, Uh you know, first out of home and then from Karma Kitchen's bakery, what, what are the customers' reactions? And can you tell me any customer stories about people whose lives have been changed with your bread? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of people that have the ability to digest the bread a lot better or they haven't they weren't able to eat bread for a long time because it made them sick or they had a gluten intolerance and we make everything with you know whole wheat flour and sourdough so it's a lot more healthy for people but it's also a probiotic and a prebiotic sourdough bread and it's a lot more digestible for people so there's been lots of people that say they couldn't eat bread before having our bread or that would make them sick or etc cetera, etc cetera. um I definitely remember like being rebuked for a long time when we first opened and just having a lot of doors shut on my face because it was I was doing cold calls. I just I had everything except a briefcase and I would just knock on the door of a kitchen and like just drop bread off and like a terrible Microsoft Word priceless that I had made and like a homemade business card and I was trying to call people back to get information about if they liked the bread or if they wanted to god forbid order some and they were just unwilling I think to approach treating bread as something that had its own flavor because they're so used to pull boy bread just being this napkin that they can just dump shrimp on or garlic or wine or butter or crawfish or whatever it is and the bread's never going to talk back to it but obviously our bread wants to be part of that dialogue of flavor in the bigger dish and we were just confronted by chefs eight seven eight years ago that i think refused to accept bread as something that has inherently its own integrity and flavor well over that time Things have certainly changed in the restaurant industry and your relationship with those chefs because it it has become a point of pride for many restaurants to point out that their bread comes from Bellegarde. Yeah. Yeah, we're very thankful for that too. But I think definitely from 
seven years ago, kind of groveling and not knowing where to where to turn or what to do compared to where we're at today. We're definitely really grateful for for that um, acceptance into the into the community here. Let's talk about your milling effort and where milling has taken you. Milling. So for those people that don't know, bread bread is composed basically of two things. It's just flour and water and then to a smaller extent, some salt. So just like wine is made of grape juice, bread is very elemental in what it's composed of. So I went to vocational baking school and we learned everything from like chiffon cakes to cappuccinos to eclairs and ciabatta and all of this stuff but we never talked about our ingredients. So we learned everything about technique and we learned everything about recipes, but we never talked about not just sourcing ingredients, but where ingredients are actually coming from historically and traditionally and who were they are, were available to. Um, Cause obviously what you eat is very relative to your social or your racial status and, and who and where you are and where you live um, in the country. So I just had this big questioning of wanting to really dig deeper into where our ingredients were coming from. And I started off by going to Abita Springs um, with your old landlord, Ken, Ken Cuddlechuck. <laughs> he and I would go to Abita Springs to the brewery with like 15 sparkless bottles and fill up the at the brewery water. And I would use that water for a month to make our bread because that was pure artesian water. And that's what I was you know, thinking was the best thing to use in the bread. And then things just gradually developed where I was paying all this attention to our equipment and to the mixing methods and the fermentation and all this stuff. But the main ingredient in the bread, the flour, I, I kind of knew the least about. So it was a weird contradiction that the most important thing in the loaf of bread, I didn't really have any clue about. And it was just this really monotonous white flour. So it led me down a rabbit hole where I bought a little tabletop mill and kind of like a drug habit. The mills just got bigger and bigger and bigger until now on our new bakery at Apple Street, we have two 2,500 pound flour mills that are absolutely gigantic. And before COVID, we were milling about 4,000 pounds of flour a week that we were using mostly for ourselves, but also selling to local bakeries and restaurants and to retail customers as well too. But the simple analogy would be having a winemaker grow their own grapes because it's, it's quite simple to buy grapes and do what you can to make the best wine possible with them. But in the case of bread, what we're doing is we're doing everything except growing the wheat ourselves. And we know pretty well all the people that are growing our grains. So we're telling them kind of what we want and not what we expect, but what we would like. And it's a very reciprocal relationship. And we take their grain and we mill it according to exactly how we want it to taste and to smell and to perform. And that's given a huge intimacy not only to our bread, but I think to our relationships with our farmers on an economic and an emotional and, and even a spiritual level, too, that we're not buying commodity ingredients from a Cisco or a U.S. Foods, but we're buying on the direct economy directly from the farmers that are growing the grain for us and for other people as well, too. And that that model translates to everything else that we buy. So we buy our salt from Avery Island, Louisiana. We buy our olive oil from San Antonio. We buy our figs directly from California. We support the only organic pecan farm in Louisiana, which is in Brobridge. So everything we buy, it's, it's a farm to table bakery. And I believe that not only on economic, you know, meaning and an economic level, but on an emotional level too, that good ingredients make better food. And with milling, it just became apparent that milling fresh flour as opposed to buying dead white flour was something that was incredibly important to me, not just as a baker, but as a pseudo public health professional as well, too, because especially with all the protests going on, it's like white flour is also 
incredibly unhealthy for people and it's also the cause of a huge amount of everything from diabetes to obesity so like this whole notion of whiteness translates to our food as well too and like darker foods are a lot healthier for people especially when it comes to darker breads and it's something that we've been talking about for years and not hitting people over the head with but whole wheat flour which just happens to be darker has huge emotional and historical connotations that people always wanted to eat whiter bread for the obvious reasons but when it comes to your body and when it comes to what the doctor recommends the darker the bread the better it is for you now i was so happy to see your name on that james beard nomination Uh list and i thought to myself this the first time how could that be and you explained to me why that is because in my mind at least you are doing some of the most remarkable head-turning work in the country way certainly in the south and how did it take this long for them to notice you uh well thank you very much but uh, from from what I understand, you, you can't get in that category without having a retail bakery. So, you know, for as you said, for six years, we didn't have a retail component to the bakery. It was all just wholesale. So we opened the retail right after Hurricane Barry. Um, and that's, you know, I guess the first year that we were eligible to be in the category we got nominated. So it's it's obviously a huge honor and it's been it's been great. Were so, you surprised? Uh, I wasn't thinking about it. Yeah, really, because the. The nomination came up, I guess, during Carnival, uh. and then the final shortlist or whatever came out kind of at the peak of COVID. So it's it still hasn't settled because I just not allowing myself the time to let it kind of digest because of everything that's going on. But I mean, it's it's a huge honor um, because again, I I think that it would be so easy, and there's so many people, and I'm not judging them, but there's so many people that just do things the easy way and it would be a lot easier for me to keep my mouth shut to buy white flour to buy white sugar to buy other bad ingredients and just throw it all in a mixer and spend a lot of money on social media and retire at 35 and go fishing in Lake Bourne you know for the rest of my life but it's just not it's not what I want to do I like to do something a little bit deeper and something a lot more sincere when it comes to food and ingredients and to the community as well too and I think it's just hugely vindicating to be recognized by James Beard Foundation for doing something that wasn't popular and doing something that wasn't easy. I think the irony is that when I could have used that boost or that 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 not recognition, but that awareness, you know, six, seven, five years ago, it wasn't there. And now it's like now I know who I am and what I stand for. So it's it's great to be thought about. And I'm I'm very grateful and thankful. But it's just funny that when these things come out, you kind of are who you are. And when you need those things the most, they're not there. But I suppose that's that's part of the process. And that's probably part of the trial is that if you can get through those hard times then you can earn the accolades or the recognition later. But I, I did think about that briefly about, you know, working 14 hours a day, seven days a week and just wondering, like, when it was going to change or get better and not knowing what was next and now seven years later it's 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 great to hear that but it's also it earns a bit of a chuckle grayson gill of belgard bakery speaking with us last june 
In the weeks following our conversation, as Grayson dealt with the financial and emotional fallout from the pandemic, he made the tough decision to temporarily close the bakery. Bellegarde reopened its doors in October. As for that James Beard nomination, before the awards ceremony slated for September, the James Beard Foundation made the controversial decision not to name any winners in 2020, denying him or anybody else the title of Outstanding Baker last year. The foundation plans to resume handing out awards in 2022. Coming up next, we speak with John and Jason Gendusa, grandson and great-grandson of the man who changed the shape of New Orleans bread forever when he helped develop the poor boy loaf. Louisiana Eats returns in a moment. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. Roast beef dressed, extra gravy, fried shrimp with hot sauce, golden fried oysters dressed, but hold the pickles. No matter how you like your poor boy, if you're ordering in New Orleans, it will be made with real New Orleans French bread. And it's very likely that bread originated from one of two poor boy bakeries in the city. One is Leidenheimer Baking Company. The other is John Gendusa Bakery, where the New Orleans Poor Boy Loaf originated. Four generations of the Gendusa family have stewarded the John Gendusa Bakery since its founding in 1922. When third-generation proprietor John Gendusa spoke to Louisiana Eats in 2010, he shared the story of how his grandfather, John Sr., sat down with Benny and Clovis Martin of Martin Brothers Grocers and changed the shape of New Orleans French bread forever. Real French bread is fat in the middle and pointed on the ends. And if you got the skinny end of the sandwich, you didn't get too much of a sandwich. Some people were getting big sandwiches, and some were getting the skinny ends of the sandwich. When my grandfather was a child back in uh, Sicily, he used to stay around the bakeries there. That's why he wanted to become a baker. And he remembered they made the long, straight loaves of bread there. 
So he made some for the uh, Martins, and they decided they were going to try it, and it worked out great. This innovative new loaf was 40 inches in length and rectangular without the pointy ends. The impressive new sandwich size was sufficient to feed a whole family, which was especially important during the 1929 streetcar strike when Benny and Clovis Martin, former streetcar conductors themselves, promised every striking worker a free meal at Martin's as long as the strike went on. It's said that when one of the strikers would come through the front door of Martin's, the call would ring out, here comes another one of them poor boys, giving our now famous sandwich its name. Since that time, the loaf that the first John Gendusa fashioned has long been called poor boy bread, or simply French bread. But as John explained to us, that name can be misleading. We call it French bread, but my father was from Italy. We have other bakers from Germany and all over. We don't have any real Frenchmen in New Orleans who make French bread. So it's, it's a different and unique type of bread only found in New Orleans from the various people that have made it and gotten this loaf together. Maybe it's the water or maybe it's the yeast spores. One thing's for sure, it can only be made in New Orleans. One of the things that, that happened, I wasn't around, my father told me about this. He had two top-notch bakers. They left, went to Baton Rouge, and they were going to make French bread, New Orleans French bread. Never could do it. They tried and tried. They came back, talked to my father. They tried things, tried things, and they never could find out what was wrong and how to make a loaf of bread in Baton Rouge. They would talk with my father. My father would try to help them out. And everything they did, nothing came to pass to make a good loaf of poor boy bread in Baton Rouge. Today, the John Gendusa Bakery is one of only two traditional poor boy bread suppliers still operating in New Orleans. But luckily, John Gendusa's son Jason is working to keep the family tradition alive. Future is my son. My son is in it. He's been in for 10 years now. And he's just about getting ready to learn how to make a loaf of French bread after those 10 years. Daddy's still got to show him a few things, but he's, he's really getting down to the point where he can make a very good loaf of bread. That was John Gendusa speaking with Louisiana Eats in 2010. One decade later, while John has technically retired, he continues to work regularly at the bakery. Jason Gendusa, who grew up immersed in the family business, is now the fourth generation owner. Jason recently joined us by Zoom to talk about growing up in the bakery and why he's decided to carry on the family legacy that his great-grandfather started nearly a century ago. Jason, you and I had a laugh when we first spoke about your dad's famous last words in his Louisiana Eats interview. He said, yeah, he's making some progress. Maybe in another few years, he'll be able to make a good loaf. Well, he'd probably tell you the same thing if you asked him again today. So, um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> tell me about what it takes to make a good loaf. You know, what makes it 
like it, today's a great example. You know, in the morning when we started production, it wasn't blistering hot. So you didn't need to put as much ice and you could put more yeast in the dough. But as the day went on, you have to start adding more ice, cutting back on you the yeast. And um, it's just little details like that that can be the difference between making a good product and something that you might have to throw away. You know, it's very special. I mean, it's an art. You have to change as you go from hour to hour, minute to minute, depending on this wonderful New Orleans weather and humidity. You know, it's not something where somebody can wake up one day and say, I'm going to go open a French bread bakery. You need years of experience. And, you know, I tell people to this day, I'm still learning. You know, it's not something that you can just jump into. You got to have the enthusiasm and the energy to really put 110% into it every day. I, you know, I took my first vacation in 20 years last year. Um, I'd worked for 20 years straight before I had a day off. Of course, the bakery is totally a family affair because your mom runs the business office, so both your mom and dad have been there on premise for most of your life, huh? Oh, no question. It's definitely one of those things that's kept the family, you know, close because, you know, I I literally see them every day for the last 20 years working with them and growing up, they would, instead of going to summer camp or you know, a babysitter, I'd tag along to the bakery. So, you know, I've been in their back pocket for a long time due to the bakery. I mean, I can just remember as, you know, probably a two or three year old, you know, baby running around the bakery, playing in the flour and literally happened to be swept off before I got in a car to go home because, you know, I was just covered from head to toe in flour, but I loved it, you know, and I think that's where, my love of the bakery began was was that early on. When did you start working at the bakery? On weekends of, of my high school life, I would, you know, get in my car, which was a bakery van at the time. And um, I would go out and hustle business on the weekends. And that was kind of my first real life experience in the bakery. And, you know, and then I would help them in the evenings in production. So I'm not one that's had many jobs, you know, because, you know, I've pretty much worked in the bakery my whole life. So yeah, it's, it's, I started young, that's for sure. Was there ever another career possibility? You know, um, my dad said I couldn't take the bakery until I got a degree from college. I wasn't your typical college guy, you know, on weekends I would come in town and watch the production crew on Friday and Saturday nights. You know, I mean, I'm talking from eight at night till three in the morning. Every now and then I'd get up in there and do some myself with the outcome not being too well, but that's how you learn, you know? (laughs) I mean, I made a lot of mistakes before I began to catch on. There were maybe forks in the road early on in my college life, but in the end, it always pointed back to taking over the bakery. So you have grown up knowing that it was your great-grandfather who originated that loaf that we all know today as the poor boy. What has that legacy meant to you? When did you start eating a poor boy and connecting <laughs> to the importance of that? You know, it really hit me. I mean, I always thought it was, it was a cool thing because, you know, even being a little kid, people would mention it to me. But it it really came in the focus after Katrina when, you know, there were 
reservations about coming back, not knowing if the city was going to be viable for a bakery. And people would, you know, literally come to the bakery while there was still gutted houses around and saying, you need to rebuild. You're part of New Orleans. You know, we need you back. And um, I think that really hit me. And, and there was a good customer of ours who, who came to the bakery one day while we were still in that question mode. And he, I mean, he was almost in tears. He's like, y'all have to rebuild. He's like, you don't understand what you would, how you affect my business as well. He's like, I need your product to make my product as good as it can be. And I think after that day, you know, my dad and I both sat down and we were like, you know, we got to do this. And um, Katrina really opened my eyes to how deeply rooted we are into New Orleans tradition. How old were you then? Back then, that's uh, about 25 years old. Jason, this is a very, very old school business and a very old school process in every way. As the fourth generation, the future of Gendusa Bakery, how are you staying relevant? Tell me about your vision for the future and why you're where you're at. Yeah, well, I think um, one reason why we're where we are today, you know, being successful and more importantly, still in business is that, you know, I'm hands on with everything, you know, my customers, my product, and they appreciate that. They, they like to know if, you know, there is a problem, they can reach out directly to me. And I also keep in touch with them from time to time just to say, hey, how's everything going? You know, what can we do to make things better? And um, I built a very good rapport with, with most of my customers, almost to friendship level. You know, I mean, some some guys nice. will get on the phone and just talk about everything but the bakery and the restaurant business. So um, just moving forward, you know, you, we got to adjust with the times, especially now. Um, I like to keep my machinery as up to date as possible because that helps out making a good product. Uh, another big thing in our business is employees because, you know, the guys I have now are, are specialized in this. They've been doing it just as long as me, if not longer. And, um, you know, so I like to take care of them because there's not many people walking around in the streets that you can just grab and would know how to do this. Or face it, know how to do it or be willing to do it. Well, that's the thing. In July and August, you, you won't, if you hired somebody today, they probably wouldn't be here on Thursday. <laughs> it's just, it's just that how it is. It's, it's, it's tough to handle that heat if you're not used to it. Is there anything that you can think of that you've changed at all since you've taken over the bakery? You know, um, my dad had a saying to me when I was young and coming and up and learning. He's like, if you ever have a problem making bread, Go back to the way your great-grandfather did it. And that's, you know, the way I still do it now. Same formula, same everything. And um, seems to be working well so far. So I'm going to stick with that. Jason, please give my love to your mom and dad. And thank you so much for having this conversation with us on Louisiana Eats. You're welcome. And, you know, anytime you need me, you can find me. That was Jason Gendusa, fourth generation owner of John Gendusa Bakery and great grandson of the originator of the Poor Boy Loaf.
Why did Grayson Gill name his aspirational bakery Bellegarde? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes, available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, Stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this spring. The North Shore is brimming with welcoming patios, boasting waterfront views, and decadent dishes. Indulge in fresh Louisiana seafood, locally grown produce, homemade sweet treats, and ice-cold brews. You're invited to feed your soul along the Tammany Taste Culinary Trail, just 40 miles north of New Orleans French Quarter, and a world away. Plan your St. Tammany visit at louisiananorthshore.com. This week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Why did Grayson Gill name his aspirational bakery Bellegarde? He knew that New Orleans bread had existed since before the poor boy loaf and was curious about what it could have been. After extensive historical research on the history of bread in the Crescent City, Grayson uncovered the story of what is believed to be New Orleans' first bakery. In 1722, a baker named Francois opened the first Bellegarde on the corner of St. Anne and Charters. That name, Bellegarde, represented something honest and simple to Grayson, which is how the James Beard-nominated bakery got its name. I'm Poppy Tooker. And Grayson Gill's bread is some good Louisiana Eats. My name is Sandy Juan, and I am the fourth generation of my family to run Leidenheimer Baking Company. And I am the current president and CEO of Leidenheimer Baking Company. And my name is William Wan, and I am coming in as the fifth generation to work at Leidenheimer Baking Company. If you've ever seen the cartoon on those iconic delivery trucks proclaiming, sink your teeth into a piece of New Orleans culture, a Leidenheimer poor boy, and immediately started pondering whether you were closer to Domelisi's or Parkway, you're not alone. 
The New Orleans craving for a poor boy seems never satiated. This year, Leidenheimer marks 125 years of baking New Orleans' staff of life. The original Mr. Leidenheimer's only child was a daughter named Josephine, who married a man named Robert J. Wan, changing the Leidenheimer last name forever to Wan. Sandy and William Wan are the fourth and fifth generation owners of the Leidenheimer Bread Company. We spoke with them to learn a bit about their family's history with the famous loaf, which goes all the way back to the late 19th century. Well, Poppy, it started uh, with the dream. George Heinrich Leidenheimer, as a young man in Deidesheim, Germany, uh, which is in the Rheinstrasse, decided that he would head west, chase his dreams in America. Um, he had cousins here in New Orleans who worked in the baking industry, and he came here to join them. Uh, he worked with them for uh, a fairly short time, a couple of years before starting his own bakery. Uh, he started that bakery on Dryad Street. George had a fiery temper. I, I have read newspaper accounts that when the city got in touch with George to tell him that they were taking over uh, his uh, bakery site for a new refrigerated warehouse for produce, George said, no, I don't think you are. And he got into quite the standoff with the city uh, and uh, to a point where it made uh, multiple news headlines that German baker George Leidenheimer uh, resists efforts of city uh, to take over the, uh, uh, his, his, uh, his building. But of course, they eventually did. In the old saying, you can't fight City Hall, I think he found that uh, to be the case. So he moved uh, literally three blocks away to the corner of Simon Bolivar Avenue, uh, and what is now Martin Luther King. And uh, our physical address is 1501 Simon Bolivar Avenue. We've been here since 1905 when there were dirt streets and we still had mule and horse-drawn wagons delivering product. We actually had too much space back then. And George had the rear of the building where he kept the mules and the horses. He leased it out to a casket manufacturer uh, and that's a little little uh, uh, piece of family history that is uh, not well known, that at one point in the same building, they were producing coffins in addition to French bread, not quite the product offering that one would expect. Sandy, so, uh, let's yeah. talk about the Wan family and, and how the business then continues. Sure. So Robert Wan uh, ran the company until his death in the uh, early 1970s. My dad... Robert Wan III was getting his MBA at Tulane at the time and working in the oil industry. And my grandfather convinced him to join him at the bakery part-time while he was studying. And so dad did that. And literally within a year of my dad joining the bakery, my grandfather died. Mm. Uh, and so my father quit his MBA studies. So basically it fell in my father's lap. Uh, and I think at first he was reluctant uh, but felt a very strong sense of family duty, as uh, I think is very common uh, in family businesses like ours, particularly family businesses in New Orleans. And so he took up the fight. And uh, I joined him uh, after college in 1986. And we worked together 
until 2004, uh, actually uh, early 2005, because my dad retired uh, just before Katrina hit. Um, <laughs> and I always teased him that uh, that was some pretty good timing, that he left me, uh, you know, right before Katrina hit. I, I knew uh, at a very early age, uh, I think the only thing I ever wanted to do was, was enter the baking business. I can remember going with my father on the weekends and in the summers, and uh, uh, part of the area that's now been renovated into our offices uh, used to be where we would store the flour. And it came in on huge pallets uh, in 50 pound sacks. And these, to a child, it seemed like it was just a sea of them. Uh, and uh, as a kid, my favorite thing to do when I would come with my grandfather or my dad was those pallets were my jungle gym. I'd play <laughs> around on them and climb on them and jump from one to the other and come back covered in white flower dust uh, and drink uh, small bottled Cokes uh, out of a cooler that they had, those dark green small glass bottles. And uh, every now and then my aunt who worked at the bakery would give me a nickel uh, for stamping envelopes and uh, counting coins for her. And uh, my other payment was we had a wonderful little corner store about three blocks down from the bakery called Fiorella's. Uh, and that family is now down uh, near the French market. Well, Fiorella's had a pull boy that I was very fond of. It was a pork chop pull boy. And when I was really well behaved, my aunt would have one of the salesmen pick up pork chop pull boys for the office. Now, the pork chop pull boy was simple, as you might guess. It was a grilled, pan-grilled uh, pork chop uh, dressed. The only problem was that pork chop had a bone in the middle of it. So you basically had to eat around the bone when you ate the pull boy. And you were left at the end with a little circle of pull boy and largely bone. And only the uninitiated would bite straight through and treat it like a regular pull boy, Poppy. You see, you have to, you have to be very careful with that. While we're fresh with your dad's childhood memories, I would love to hear about what you remember. I don't imagine there were bone-in pork chop poor boys. Well, I, I do not have any bone-in pork chop poor boys in my memory, but some of my earliest memories, I mean, ever, date back to almost almost on a weekly basis. Every single Saturday, my dad would bring my sister and me to whether it was Domelisi's or Parkway and just really from a very early age exposing us to po' boys. I mean, it was just a, it was a part of our weekly routine. I would go to the bakery from time to time, you know, sometimes post hurricane cleanup. I was in third grade after hurricane Katrina. And I, I, I definitely remember just the, the uncertainty. I mean, my dad obviously did a very good job of, not making his young children nervous about anything. Uh, but it was definitely a weird time. I mean, he was, we were in Baton Rouge with our mom, just kind of going to school and making it through while he was back here fighting tooth and nail to get the business back up and running. My dad didn't want me to ever feel like I was going to be forced to go into this business. So I, 
I probably spent a considerable amount less time exposed to the bakery than he did when he was growing up. Um, so my the majority of my memories are to take place in the po'boy shops and in restaurants and outside of the actual bakery. So, William, when did you decide that the family business was going to be your life? Well, there there certainly might have been a little bit of reverse psychology involved because <laughs> almost the complete opposite of his treatment, where it was almost a foregone conclusion when he was a young child that he was going to end up in the business. He was always telling me, you know, don't come to the business. You don't need to come to the business. You know, do what you want. And up until about seventh grade, I was convinced that I was going to be an ESPN news anchor. Um, and then over time, it, it obviously that didn't seem as appealing to someone who really there was no question that I wanted to end up in New Orleans once I graduated from school. It's growing up here and being as ingrained in the, the food industry and just being able to grow up around what makes New Orleans so unique. There was no way that I was going to move somewhere else and live there for a considerable amount of time. So kind of that coupled with the fact of there's this just unbelievable opportunity to continue be the next in line of a company that's lasted over a hundred years. That's been such an integral part of my family's history in the city. As I got older and, and matured, it really, I mean, it just seemed like an absolute no brainer. And even, even up until my sophomore year of college, when I started talking to my dad and saying, you know, I think, I really think this is what I want to do. And he would say, well, you know, make sure of that. Don't, don't rush into it too quickly. You know, you really need to think about it. And as soon as he started saying, I don't know, I don't know. Are you sure you want to do that? That's when, and that was hook, line, and sinker. I was like, okay, I definitely want to do this now. Let's talk business for a minute, Sandy. How's it going over there now? Well, Poppy, that question uh, calls to mind one of my favorite quotes. Man plans, God laughs. I think that this pandemic uh, has proven once again uh, that that quote tells us an awful lot. We have a, a loosely knit strategic plan. We always have. Uh, and this pandemic has basically knocked it right off track. And I think that what any business needs to have uh, in good times or bad, but particularly in bad, is you have to have a sense of resiliency. You have to be able, uh, you have to, be able to pivot. You have to be able to take advantage of the strengths of your company, find opportunities. Uh, and we've been very fortunate uh, to be able to do that. Uh, I'm very happy to say that Leidenheimer is celebrating its 125th anniversary, and I am confident that we'll be celebrating 150th and a 200th. We are here for the long term. That was father and son, Sandy and William Wan, fourth and fifth generation proprietors of the Leidenheimer Bread Company.
ain't got no woman, no one to come on. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and producer and special projects manager, Reggie Morris, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladu. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>